Well, good morning. I'd like to read from 1 Peter this morning. We've been working our way through this All About Love series in our Summer of Love, and we've heard from several of the gospel writers, but we haven't heard from Peter and his perspective. So this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because of this you you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For, now this goes into an Old Testament quote from the Psalms, whoever among you would love life and see good days must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, we pray that you will continue to make us wiser and that you'll prepare our hearts to allow your word to sink in in a way that satisfies the questions in our minds and that it gives, that gives us clear direction on how we are to live out the truths that we find in Scripture and the experience of your grace and your presence that you bring into our lives. We, we long for the way that we live day in and day out to become more and more in sync, flowing from the love that you have shown us and the love that we are discovering. So I ask that you would continue to change me, my thoughts, my ways, and us, and our thoughts, and our ways. Little by little, cause our hearts and our minds and our patterns of life to correspond to the way of love that we find in Jesus. Make us as a congregation more and more loving and ready to receive people who are different from the experiences that we may have had and people who are new and kicking the tires of faith and people who have had different walks in life or have come from different places around the world. Allow us to increasingly demonstrate the life-transforming love that you have shown us. This is part of our heart's cry and our, and our deep prayer, that you'd make us more and more like Jesus. We also ask that you would walk through us in every facet of life that we go through. The up times when we find successes and joys and laughter, and the down times when we struggle and go through times of sorrow and, and great turmoil. Today we lift up some of those who are struggling with Uh, sickness who are part of our church family and pray for John and Tom and Jean and Ginny and Chris and Mark and Peter 
who are all struggling in, in one way or another, either recovering from surgery or uh, dealing with uh, a, a devastating illness. There are probably an, a handful of people here who've gotten COVID recently as that seems to rebound again in the fall. And we ask that you would give us the resilience to walk through these challenging times of life, clinging to the hope that you give us day by day. On those who are, are dealing with physical illnesses, we ask that you would pour out your mercy on them and also your power to heal. Work through the doctors, work through the nurses, work through the, the various technicians in the hospitals, but also deliver your life-changing power into their lives. We ask that you would cure all of us of the biggest ailment that we have, and that's our own sinful hearts. And so we ask, Lord, that you would continue to purify us by the Holy Spirit, whom we've already invited through our songs to be active in our lives here today, in this hour, in this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever considered the costs that are associated with love? I know that there are, there are a number of songs and there's a part of our culture that tells us that love is free. Love is something that you don't pay for. Love should be just flowing. But have you ever considered the costs of love? In Psychology Today, Dr. Randy Gunther writes about the changes we embrace when love is fresh and new in our lives. He writes, people newly in love joyfully care for each other in every way they can. They strive to fulfill each other's every desire and even attempt to anticipate them in advance. And then he speaks of what he calls generosity coffers. He says their generosity coffers are overflowing and they easily forgive when disappointments emerge. But everything changes when love wanes or ceases or stops. They strive to fulfill each other's every desire, but it's not so easy. And he goes on to make the point that despite pop song lyrics that we discover, uh, love is never free. Love is always costly. When you love somebody deeply, you give up something of yourself in order to fit that person in or to show them that they have a priority in your life. So it is when Christians embark on the way of love that was modeled by Jesus. Doing so is not always the easy thing to do. Love in action is often costly. So this morning, as we're nearing the end of this summer of love, this uh, long three-month period where we've been talking about love all summer long, I'd like to talk about the commitments of costly love. Last Sunday, Pastor Todd uh, let, uh, took us... To, to look closely and carefully about how the, the way of love plays out through mutual submission in all of our relationships throughout the church, but especially when we bring it home in the marriage relationship. He did a beautiful job of unpacking a very difficult to understand passage and breaking down the key points from that. If you struggle with those concepts, go back and listen to that one. Today and next Sunday, we're adding the final two pieces of this All About Love series. And today we discover that the Apostle Peter challenged Christians in an increasingly hostile climate to consider the costly commitments of love. The more the culture becomes hostile toward Jesus or the way of Jesus, the more our commitment to love becomes costly. Does that make sense to you? 
So I'd like to explore that a little bit. So let me just say good morning to all of you, my North River friends. I'm really glad that you're here. Thanks for being a part of this Summer of Love series. Thank you for, you for all of you goofballs who have worn the tie-dye shirts and who have really gotten into this. Uh, we've, we've really had a lot of fun with all this. But we're, we're discovering something that I think is really deeply on God's heart, that the church should be the most loving place on the face of the earth. But it takes work for that to happen. It takes focus and intentionality for that to happen. Let me welcome everybody who is here in our Pembroke Worship Center and also those of you who are with us online today. I'm glad that you have taken the time and the trouble to figure out the connection and and how to be with us here this morning. I'm glad that you found our live stream and that you're with us right now. On this particular day, 34 years ago, the very first church service of North River Community Church took place. We met in a rented schoolroom in the old Pembroke Community Center, which no longer exists, and I'm so grateful for the friends who jumped in to launch North River with me in those early days, and for all of you who have followed their lead. We have been on a 34-year journey in discovering what it means for us to, to create a church that really wants to follow Jesus in the midst of a rapidly changing culture. And I am so grateful for all of you who've been a part of that from the first days until today. So the question that I have in mind today is this, does the Lord really expect me and does the Lord really expect you to love others when doing so is hard or even costly? You know the answer to that is going to be yes. (laughs) But we we ask that question sometimes in our minds, does the Lord really expect me to love this way? Does the Lord really expect me to continue to love when it's hard to do that? Or when the people on the other side of the receiving end of that love push me away, or when we live in a world that seems to increasingly say, I love Jesus conceptually, but push away the concepts and the call of Jesus. When it gets down to the day-to-day grind of how we live. One of the questions that I have when I open up the letter of 1 Peter, meaning that's the first letter that Peter wrote to a group of churches. Why did Peter write this letter? Since we're not going through a beginning to the end study of 1 Peter, and I'm I'm just jumping in at chapter 3 today, I want to go back a little bit and ask, why did Peter write this letter? And there are three reasons that I can find right away. First, he was near the end of his days. He opens this particular letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout, and then he lists a whole bunch of different areas. Peter identifies himself right away as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't mention that he was an apostle in order to create an appeal to authority. He uses this title because it indicated that he and the other apostles were sent by Jesus, and they were living in places that were not their homes. He was also letting us know that the reason that he was an apostle was because he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus, meaning he saw him with his own eyes during that 40-year period after the resurrection. He heard him. He ate a meal with him. All of these things, he knew Jesus was alive, and he was sent to tell the world about God's grace. Whether he knew it or not, Peter was now near the end of his days. The historic witness of the early church holds that Peter spent his final years in Rome. 
The best scholarship places this letter at around 64 AD, meaning roughly 30 years after Jesus died and was raised again. Nero was the emperor of Rome, and the times were about to get much harder for Christians. The Bible doesn't record Peter's death, but Roman historians hold that Peter and Paul were held at Mamertine prison in Rome just before they were each executed at Nero's command. Sue and I toured part of that prison in Rome earlier this summer when we were there, and it's amazing to see that here's one of these sites less than a half a mile away from the Colosseum, and yet it's one of the lesser-known sites in, in Rome itself. And just to stand there in the ruins of this prison And looking at a plaque on the wall, that's what you see over on this side. Some of the words in the second line say, Apostoli Pietro e Paolo. That's Peter and Paul saying this is where Peter and Paul spent their last days in prison before they were executed. The second reason why Peter wrote this letter, he was concerned about scattered Christians. Uh, not, not, not scattered in your thinking. Some of us think that we're scattered when you're ADD and you're all over the place and you can't control your thoughts. That's not what he had in mind. That hadn't been discovered yet. But physically scattered around the world because of persecution. So go back to verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Look at the next word he uses. Exiles. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter himself was far from home. The disciples were scattered when opposition focused on the Christian movement. Acts chapter 8 tells us that all except the apostles were initially scattered after Stephen's death. Stephen was one of the first deacons and he was stoned to death by some of his fellow citizens of Jerusalem who couldn't bear to hear him talk about the resurrected Jesus. And the Holy Spirit the book of Acts says, use that persecution to spread the gospel movement to other lands. So here's the genius of God. God doesn't create the persecution, but he uses evil for good in that as people were scattered to other places, they took the gospel with them, and the gospel movement actually grew as a result of the hostile culture's desire to persecute Christians. It just shows you how much God can use anything and anyone at any time and in any way. Even on the worst day of your life, he can be doing something absolutely profound. Now, some 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter was writing to both Jewish and non-Jewish Christians in modern-day Turkey. All of these churches that were mentioned, these towns that were mentioned, were in what we would today call Turkey Churches had formed in whatever cities the disciples had scattered to, and Peter and the apostles had deliberately planted churches in key cities. Held in prison, Peter, like Paul, began to write letters of encouragement and instruction to Christians in the places where he had been. He began by reminding them that they were chosen by God the Father, set apart by the Holy Spirit, in order to be obedient to Jesus. In other words, in order to follow the instructions of Jesus because we carry on his work today. And that was the mindset that Peter had developed. Peter was offering advice about pursuing hope and holiness in a hostile culture. I can't think of a writer with a more relevant message for us as we navigate how to live for Jesus in a rapidly changing and increasingly hostile culture toward principles that are embedded in Christian faith. Lip service toward Jesus. I love Jesus. Who wouldn't love Jesus? But resistance to what Jesus actually said 
and what he called us to. Here's a third reason why Peter was writing. He knew that love was crucial to their survival. As he's thinking of this early church growing into to potentially hostile lands, love was going to be absolutely crucial. So if we jump forward to chapter 3, the beginning of the section that I read a moment ago, Peter begins it this way in verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Here in verse 8, Peter's final instructions begin in a way that will take up three chapters. If you think pastors uh, go long when they say, and in conclusion, and they have all this other stuff to say, Peter does it at the outset of chapter 3, and he's got three more chapters to go through before he finishes what essentially is his conclusion. This particular verse contains five specific commands, and at the center of the five is the most important of the one another commands. He calls the church to love one another. It's what pulls together all of those other descriptive words that are around that. That command is then surrounded by these four additional commands that reveal the character and depth of the love that we are challenged to offer. Be like-minded. Love spreads when we share the same goals and the same mindset. I don't think that he, for any reason, thought that we would all think identically, but we become tied to the mindset of Jesus. Second, love is felt deeply when we are sympathetic, when we carry each other's pain. It's it's why we pray for each other when we go through hard times and ask God to pour out his mercy and his compassion. Third, love heals when it is wrapped in compassion. And fourth, love is easily received when it is combined with humility. When the call to love is wrapped in these values, we realize that Peter was not just calling Christians to a loving feeling, but to offer a deep and rich experiential love in the midst of their world. That still rings true for us today. Loving God comes before all else. If love itself comes from God, loving the Creator, who is also the Creator of love, becomes the key for us to love others. All that to introduce love's costly commitments. Peter connects this command to love in verse 8 with the costly commitments that flow from love. And it's important that we see that these commitments flow from a life of love. He doesn't do this in a way that says, we're going to beat each other up if we don't flawlessly execute. But rather, this is what we're aiming for. This is who we are to become over time with what flows. And I boil it down to three challenges that he gives us with these costly commitments. Here's the first one. Refuse verbal retaliation. In verse 9, Peter writes, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. This is a hard statement from Peter. He starts by showing us what a love of life does not display. We don't repay evil with evil. We don't return insult with more insults. Have you ever noticed when people bicker? When people get into a road rage event or something like that in our day, it's real easy to throw out an insult and the other person raises the bar and it goes back and forth really quickly. This is why Peter says, no. If we're operating from that base of love, we begin to train ourselves not to overreact to words like that. To avoid that kind of verbal retaliation. 
And then he provides a positive response. This is the hard part. Repay evil with blessing. This is the opposite of verbal retaliation. It sounds hard. At times it could be very costly to do so. And you think instantly, why would I do that? Why would anybody do this? It's more fun to get a better zinger in (laughs) right after somebody else zings you, isn't it? If you're honest, yeah. Peter offers two reasons. First, he tells us that we are called to a new way of life, to a way of love. He says this is part of who we are if we're Christians. Whether you're a beginning Christian, you're a middle-of-the-road Christian, you're a long-term veteran Christian, we are called to this way of love. So we're all discovering more. Second, he reminds us that those who do this will inherit a blessing. In other words, the Lord is going to do something to bless you as a result of that. It may not be momentarily or instantaneous. It may be somewhere down the road. Look at the example that Peter's writing from. Persecution scattered the Christians around the globe, and rather than being defeated by the persecution, the church just grew because they took it to unknown places, and there were more and more people who responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That happens all throughout church history, by the way. Verse 9 sounds something like what we would hear from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So Peter isn't making up something new. He's basically saying, I've been trying to live this out, and now I'm challenging the church in my final days to carry this on, to carry on the way of Jesus. The way of love is the way of Jesus, very simply. Here's the second challenge he gives. The first is refuse verbal retaliation. The second is take control of every word. That's hard, too. So here we read verses 10 and 11. For whoever among you would love life and see good days must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Peter's second commitment takes the first one to a higher level. He moves from not repaying evil with evil and insult with insult to taking full control of our tongues, our lips, and our speech. In other words, words matter. Here, Peter was not making something up on the fly. He was quoting from Psalm 34, written by King David. So these words would have been well-known and well-loved by the people of Peter's day. They already would have been a thousand years old, approximately, from the time that King David lived and wrote It's interesting that David wrote this before he was Israel's king during a time of great turbulence in his life. He was on the run from King Saul during those days when jealousy led King Saul to want to kill David, who was the most valiant of all of his captains in the army. People sang about the praises, about about the victory. They sang praises about the victories of David and his men, and Saul was jealous over all of that. David got to the point where he left Israel and was on the run and sought protection from a foreign king. He even pretended to be out of his mind at one point so that this foreign king would realize that David wasn't a threat to him. And we're told at the outset of this psalm that this is where David was. He was at that low point in his life when he wrote these words in Psalm 34 that Peter is now quoting. So when David wrote these words... 
He was playing the long game. He couldn't see how God was going to work everything out in his favor. But he was determined not to speak harsh words against King Saul, not to oppose King Saul. There were two times he could have taken Saul's life, and he didn't. And he let Saul know, I had you right where I wanted you. And only after that second time does Saul relent. He did this during a period of time when Saul was intent on destroying David's reputation for years. And the psalm tells us that the way of love turns from evil and seeks to do good. How does that play out? I recently rewatched the movie Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if any of you saw that. It's based on a true story of Desmond Doss, who was a conscientious objector during World War II. It's a violent movie. You, if you're too overly sensitive to that, you may not enjoy it, but it tries to portray the horrors of what Doss lived through. Doss was a Christian who belonged to the Seventh-day Adventist movement. He was raised by an abusive father who was bitter over his World War I service in the way that so many of his friends and fellow soldiers just walked into these lines of men who were being slaughtered, awful warfare tactics. And Doss promised the Lord that he would never take another life for any reason. When he volunteered for the army after Pearl Harbor, he refused to handle a rifle, and he called himself a conscientious cooperator. He said, I don't want to be called a conscientious objector because I'm not objecting to service. I'm volunteering for service. In fact, I'm volunteering to go into the service along with the other men. I'm just not going to carry a weapon. I'll have a red cross on my back, and I'll be a medic. I'm going to try to save lives while other people are trying to end lives. However, in doing that, he was greatly misunderstood during that time, and he took a ton of abuse from other soldiers in his company who considered him a coward. They actually tried to drum him out and to get rid of him. But in April 1945, he was part of the Battle of Okinawa, and Doss personally rescued somewhere between 50 and 100 men. Most historians put that around 75, and he got them to safety during that battle after The rest of his company had retreated. He stayed up all night long, and he kept hearing another call of men who were out in the battlefield and risking fire from Japanese soldiers. He kept crawling out to where they were and dragging them out and lowering them over the cliff that they had climbed in order to come to a point of safety. He wouldn't hold a rifle to take the lives of their enemies, yet he volunteered to save lives in the midst of the battle. In his mind, he was doing good rather than evil for a cause he believed in, but constrained by a principle that controlled his actions. Because of his incredible dedication, he gained the respect of the men who had earlier ridiculed him and heaped abuse on him. In the movie, in the final days of that battle, the other men wouldn't go up the hill until Doss was finished praying because for him Saturday was the Sabbath. And the whole company standing there watching while a general screaming into a Uh, a calm set to the captain, why aren't the men moving? He said, we're waiting. What on earth are you waiting for? We're waiting for Private Doss to finish his prayers. The men won't go up the hill without him. Can you imagine that? That really happened. Later that year, he was the first conscientious objector in all of American history to be awarded the Medal of Honor on October 12, 1945 by President Harry S. Truman. I think he was listening to Peter. I think he was listening to David. I think he was listening to Jesus about the way of love 
in the midst of an impossible situation where he also felt called to serve. And then here's the third challenge that Peter gives us. Seek peace and pursue it. Verse 11 and 12, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Very simply, the way of love seeks peace whenever possible. The way of love not only seeks peace, but pursues peace. Why? Peter offers a promise about God. That the eyes and ears of the Lord turn toward those who seek peace, while his face turns away from those who seek to do evil. Do you long for God's favor? No matter how hostile it gets, Seek peace and pursue it in your life. These are the costly commitments of love. Refuse verbal retaliation. Bring every word under control because words matter. Seek peace and pursue it. We can do this through something that we learned a few weeks ago, the great collaboration that Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit who guides us in the way of love. We're not expected to do this all by our own strength or by our own wisdom. But as we trust in Jesus and ask for the Holy Spirit's power, God strengthens us, God equips us, God enables us, God changes the software of the heart. And he's in the process of making us more like Jesus. So it all starts with love for God and love for Jesus. Love for God leads us to love our neighbors. That's the great commandment. Love for our neighbors leads us to living out the great commission. And love leads us to costly commitments as we live in the way of love, which is the way of Jesus, as part of the great collaboration. Here's the big idea that I've been trying to get across for the last 25 minutes. The way of love leads us to costly commitments that respond to hostility in ways that reflect Jesus. It wants us to reflect Jesus to a world that needs him so badly. I don't know about you, but I'm drawn to that kind of Jesus. Maybe there's somebody here who's saying, you know, I haven't put my faith formally in Jesus. I'm embracing this conceptually. But, you know, until you surrender, until you get to the point where you declare to the Lord, I am trusting you, that's at the moment that his grace pours into your life. I'm just wondering if anybody that needs to do that here today not going to make that public or put you on a, on a, into a spotlight for that, but quiet in your heart. Perhaps what you need to say is, Lord, this is the day when I'm putting my trust in Jesus. I want to follow him. Let your love, your mercy, your grace flow into my life. And as you pursue him, watch what he does. I wonder if you'd be willing to pray with me. I, I wrote a prayer that kind of takes this idea that we've been wrestling with. Um, and if you'd be willing to pray that with me, it's going to show up on your screen right now. Lord, thank you for loving us in costly ways. You gave up heaven to share life with us. You gave your life to rescue us and redeem us. You have lavished your love on us through your grace. Help us to follow you by loving in costly ways, even when it is hard. Holy Spirit, help us to live up to this calling and to find your blessing, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I can't think of a greater way to 
celebrate the 34 years that we've been meeting together as, as North River Church than celebrating communion together. Uh, if you didn't get one on the way in, there are communion kits right outside the door here on a little table. And Michelle over here has a basket. If you raise your hand, she'll get one to you. Uh, there are a few people. I see Mike in the back here, Michelle. A couple in the back. I was reading through one of the classic texts that talks about communion. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 early this morning as I was thinking about communion. This is what Paul wrote. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know about you, but I've read over this passage literally hundreds of times. And I was asking the Lord to show me, what, is there anything that I've missed in this passage? And I read it in conjunction with the accounts that Matthew, Mark, and Luke also write of this Last Supper. What struck me was the way that Paul begins in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. In other words, Paul is saying this wasn't the instruction that came from other people. It came from Jesus himself. Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus after the resurrection, after the ascension, when Jesus called Paul specifically. And so he's telling us that the Lord passed this on to him, that Jesus wanted this to be handed down. That's significant to me today. He wanted this to be handed down. Second thing, when you read this passage alongside of all three of the gospel accounts, it becomes clear that he was giving his body for us, and that's signified with the breaking of the bread, that symbolically it reminds us that his body was torn and broken for us. The third, has to do, the third observation has to do with the cup. It's interesting that most of these tell us that after the supper, he brought out the cup. So the first communion service probably didn't happen like it did right, will right here. We were doing all this together, that the breaking of the bread was as part of the meal. And then when the meal was over, he talked about the cup. But in all of these accounts, his blood establishes this new covenant of grace that Jesus makes with people who trust him, who follow him. In other words, we're no longer trusting in our own performance to live up to all of God's commands. We're recognizing we can't do that, but that Jesus' blood pays for all of our sins. He was the once-for-all sacrifice. And then most of these texts also tell us that Jesus was letting them know that he would not eat this bread or drink this cup again in this way until we are all we are all reunited with him in the kingdom of heaven at the end. So there's something that we're waiting for, which automatically means this anticipates something that is yet to come, as well as commemorating something that has already happened. And then here, in Paul's words, he says, every time we do this, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we're saying that the saving work of Jesus Christ is the most important thing that has happened in the history of the world. 
because this is how Jesus breaks through every obstacle that was between us and God so that you can really know God. You can really seek God. You can really experience God. You can really love God knowing that you are loved this much. So let's do what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. If you peel off the top little layer, there's a wafer. There are Christians that use all kinds of different bread products. I've been in churches that use Italian bread, uh, marble rye bread, matzah bread. doesn't matter. It's what it symbolizes. When we eat this together, we are saying, Jesus gave up his body for me, and I eat this in gratefulness. And then if you peel off the silver layer, when we drink this cup, we are recognizing that even though it's hard for us to stand, to understand in the culture of our day, Jesus shed his own blood to cover our sins. And we trust that this was God's plan and this was God's grace and that we don't need to pay the unpayable because it's been paid in full for us. Let's drink in remembrance of Jesus. Lord, thank you for covering all of our past. Thank you for causing us to look forward to a day when we will be reunited with the Lord who's loved us so greatly and with all other Christ followers through all the ages who dared to put their faith in Jesus. We long for that day when we will be reunited, when your kingdom comes together with the new heaven and the new earth here, the new Jerusalem on earth, and the earth is restored to its original beauty, and heaven no longer is a mystery to us. We long for that day. Keep us faithful. Keep us in your grace until that time. It's in his name we pray. Anymore. You know, in one of the gospel accounts, it says that after they had broken bread and they'd shared the cup together, they went out into the hills with a song. So we go out into our world with a song.